Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. We're now moving into the, we're continuing in the second part of Psalm 19, that, that this, this very highly structured statement of the power of Torah and what it can do, how can it affect people? All right, so we began, I'm just going to do a quick repeat of, uh, remember we're doing, uh, the, there's verses 8, 9, and 10, which have an A and a B to them. And um, also recall that I mentioned that there is an interesting repetition here of words that begin with a mem at the second, in the second part of eight and nine, all four of them. Meshivat nefesh, machimat peti, nesamche lev, and meirat nine. Mem, 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 mem. Okay. And so you have it. Okay. So the, the Torah of God is tmima, is perfect, is whole, is complete. And that pushes, starts us off with the initial statement that the, the theme here, of course, is, is the significance and the importance of Torah. Now, the next line, <coughs> okay, uh, the, the testimony here, I have to agree completely with, uh, Rabbi Siegel and his translation. <clears throat> the JPS, I think, blew it. Um, cause a dude, I can tell you exactly what that means. And it is a verb, a, a variation of testimony. So it means the testimony of God is ne'eman, is faithful, is truthful. Okay. So what is a dude? A dude is a bit, is a Torah word for the law, the, the tablets and their luchot ha'edut. They are the tablets of testimony. <clears throat> testimony to what? To the covenant. So this is a covenantal illusion. It's not happenstance. And it's specifically referring to the testimony of the, of the stones, of the tablets on which the, the, you know, possibly the entire uh, Exodus law code was on. I, I'm of the belief that it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. Okay. Because when Moses reads the covenant to the people, he's reading something that he wrote down in a scroll as well. And it's the laws that precede that in Exodus 20 through the Ten Commandments and Exodus 21 to 23. I believe that is the code. That's the, that is what was on the tablets. That's a lot. But if you've seen ancient tablets and I may have never held one, yeah, nobody has, I don't think. Uh, maybe archaeologists did when they found them. But if you look at ancient Middle Eastern tablets, they are written small letters on front and back all over the place. And so being able to put that on there, but that's a different subject. Okay. But a dude definitely is testimony. Okay, so the Torah is testimony to the, 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 the and so as it were, the, the tablets to which this might allude are the living testimony to the, to the Torah of God. And it's the first written down part of, 
of of those uh, of, of that law. Okay, all right. And then then it says this is really interesting. Machimat uh, peti, and and it, they they um, make wise the the fool, the ignorant one. Okay, in other words, they can open up a person's mind to be able to to think. It's really interesting. And I guess the point is, if a person who has been uneducated can be helped to tap into their intellect, which may never have been developed, right? Then that that learning literally opens up their 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 capacity to uh, absorb wisdom and to think wisely. And it's a that that just it just hit me. That, that that is what this might be talking about. And it's true. I mean, I've seen that with students, that when you push them and get them to open up their minds, you know, and suddenly you realize that there there is an intellect, there's a mind there that has not been generated. You know, you gotta you gotta generate the energy for the for the motor to run. And that's what Torah does. I find that very, very interesting. And the assumption is that the chokmah, wisdom, is, is a significant part of what Torah offers. All right, moving on. Pikudei the precepts of God are straight, they're, they're truthful, they are, you know, honest. And here it's interesting, they cause a heart to rejoice. I mean, have you ever thought about law giving you joy? Right. Normally you think about laws, you think about limiting you, right? Controlling you, right? Ruling you. But here it's saying it makes you joyous. Fascinating. How do we understand that? Laws make your heart rejoice. Okay. Rick. I'll go. So, um, if you have laws and nobody is above the law, then everybody can be happy that the laws mean something and we're all treated the same way under the law. So uh, that's kind of, kind of topical, but uh, yeah. No, no. <laughs> right. No, that's correct. I mean, you know, you, you can rejoice and you, you have a freedom theoretically from concern uh, that there will be chaos in society. If you have a law abiding society, then you, law is actually free, freeing you. Remember the rabbis when they talk about, um, charut, the Hebrew word charut, which means etched into the stone, relating to the Ten Commandments or to the, to the commandments. Okay. The rabbis say, altikri charut elacherut. Don't read it as etched, but read it as freedom because law makes you free because you have freedom to operate in a lawful way as everyone else. There's respect. It's orderly. And you can find joy in life because the amount of stress and anxiety is reduced. So, yes. Okay, Bert. Traditionally, is it the Torah is the story of how we're supposed to live in addition to the story of the Jewish people. Yes. The creation of the universe. 
And that guidance is something that I think Jews celebrate. I mean, look at Simchat Torah. We dance around with the Torah, you know, uh, uh, in the Shema and in prayer every day. We take on, as we say, the yoke of the mitzvot. Right. But it, it, it's with joy, and it's supposed to be with joy, because I think, as you say, if there is no law, not only does each person have to make it up themselves, but society crumbles. Right, exactly. I mean, we just heard that with the the, the story of Noah and the flood, and, you know, and what's the answer to that is Sinai. Right, exactly. That's right. And that's what that's the foundation of that midrash, right? Cherut, freedom. And so I think that's 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 worthy of rejoicing. And then it says Mitzvat Adonai Bara. Right, the the uh, I love this translation here. <laughs> uh, the, the the commandments of God, the the instruction of law, the the instruction of the Lord is lucid. <laughs> lucid, right? Me'irate uh, because it enlightens your eyes. Right, lucid <laughs> has to do with light. Right, so I mean it's it 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 enlightens you. Right, and and it's it's great. I love it. If only it were clear. Yes, hurrah! Because <laughs> <laughs> it can mean clear also. Yes. Anyway, so yes, indeed. But uh, but that's why you got to dig a little. You know, I mean, the, the, look, this is poetry. Mm-hmm. The author is developing. First of all, there's a rhythm here, but also there's a message that hidden in Torah are all of these. Potentials, potentialities that can be drawn out to have a powerful impact on a human being, right? And you know, loba shamayimhi. This isn't in heaven, right? It's not in heaven. It's here. It's it's right here. And it's interesting because the, the in, throughout the generations there have been people from other faiths or or people who were heretics within the Jewish uh, community who felt that the Torah is this restricting physical, you know, um, uh, worldly thing without any saving qualities, any, any, you know, uh, redeeming features. And what this kind of a statement makes is no. It's saying this is the opposite the law is implicit in the law is amazing power for good, for beauty, for joy, and, and so forth. Now, I don't know, I'm not going to say that, that the poet here, the psalmist, is specifically responding to groups like that. But apparent, but I think what he's responding to is, yes, within the, he's, he's in biblical times writing this. And biblical times were fraught with an ongoing tension between the monotheism of Judaism and all that it represents and the belief in one God and paganism with, 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 from the, from the Torah's perspective was just the antithesis of that. It's a chaotic, a chaotic world because every God thinks that they're above the law and there are multitudes of gods and there's no control. Whereas if you have, and there's no room for true rejoicing. That that would be the way the Torah, then this author would be presenting that, I believe. Okay, all right. First of all, Barbara, and then Leon. 
might, would, would Torah have been like the first set of laws ever given to a people? I mean, no, in no. the early days? Or, no, no, stop. No. The code, we have codes that existed. One of the great codes <clears throat> earlier in, in the second millennium, the Code of Hammurabi. That's before Torah. Okay. That was well, way before Torah. In fact, you know, Bible scholars will look at the book of Exodus, see the imprint of certain elements of the the Code of Hammurabi there, because these were, that code became a universal code throughout the Middle East. Ooh, and so, you. you know, what, what the Jews often do, in addition to developing their own perspective, they will repurpose concepts from um, other things, but they will enhance. So, for example... The, the Code of Hammurabi was intended for the upper classes of ancient uh, Mesopotamian society. Okay. If, if you read it, I mean, I haven't studied it, but I read about what you know what it says, and it, it's intended to be for the it's a, it's a the elite. This is the law for the elite, whereas the Torah flips that and says no, right? The poor and the rich alike stand as equals in the face of Torah. And that is an absolute rejection of that principle of elitism. Okay. And you find a lot of that, uh, like, for example, the um, the concept, <clears throat> you know, when Abraham and then Isaac say that their wives are their sisters, right? So, I mean, uh, Nachum Sarna, the great Nachum Sarna, who wrote a very wonderful book on on Genesis, it's part of the uh, JPS series. Uh, he makes note, and he was not a radical, you know, uh, uh, critical theorist in Torah. I mean, he accepted modern ideas, but he really was more traditionalistic. But here he says very clearly that, that what the Torah did here, there was in ancient society the concept of the wife sister. It's found in Babylonian, and they found it in certain Babylonian records, but it's also Egyptian, where a, a person, now this is a little bit different, sorry, in Egypt, uh, a king could take a daughter and make her his queen. He could marry his daughter and elevate her to a queen. <clears throat> okay, but so this notion of multiple uh, status, stat, stati, whatever you want to use the word, um, for women, you know, it has much, you know, that were, was in existence well before Torah. So the answer is yes, there were law codes in existence before that. Okay, Leon. <clears throat> yeah, I wanted to talk for a second about uh, lucid. Uh, my translation is unblemished and uh, lucid. Yeah, well, that, Barat, uh, that's nicer. Uh, yeah, you're right. Right. It could be that. It means pure. It means pure, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I but think it fits up. well with it illuminates the soul or it restores life. Right. So I think you you know it's it's a good point. But I think what, what they were picking up on, and this is something that both JPS and and uh and and uh uh, uh Benji Siegel agree upon. Um, and I think they're picking up on because because lucidity. Remember, I didn't I, I didn't I'm not going to re, re, reach over to the dictionary now. 
very often these terms have multiple layers of meanings. Yeah. I looked it up in Brown, Driver, and Briggs. Yeah. Did you check, did you check the Kehler, uh, Kehler Baumgartner, though? No, I did not. You should get that. That's the newer one. Okay. Oh. It, it, it is, it's wonderful. Sometimes it's confusing because it's so detailed, but it's great. And it's, you know, it's based on what that was written in the 70s and early 80s. So the knowledge of Semitic languages between the original, the old one and that, you know, it's, it's a long time. Anyhow. <clears throat> and the okay. other thing I wanted to mention is I, I thought the idea of, uh, Abraham's claim concerning having been married to his sister was I didn't they find in archaeology yes. uh, marriage contracts that simply stated he was adopted into the family, which may, means that he had a part of the uh, inheritance. Yes, thought that was the best of marriages. Well, that was the Mesopotamian exactly. That's what I was alluding to. Yeah, exactly. So that's paradigm. But again, you can see he's playing around in the Torah. It's not a normative thing. He's This is being done to protect the woman from the possible damage of a king or the, the local ruler uh, abusing her or killing the, the husband to get to the wife. Remember, there was a so threat. We know that from David. Huh? We know that from David. Yes. Exactly. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Lahavdir. Yes. Lahavdir. All right. So I have uh, <clears throat> Mike Harris and then Tybal. If you look at the the word lucid and 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 translate it the way, uh, define it the way I would, which is not that it generates light, but that it it is clear and allows light to pass through it, then it makes sense to say that if the instruction of the Lord is lucid. That that light passing through it will light up your eyes. Right, and but how do you I say? Like you. Yes, how do you say light in Latin? Looks. Right. L U X. So um, you know, but the purity—that's very good. I mean, that's very—I like that. That's a that—that's nice. That satisfies both of us. <laughs> that's very good. You know, because there is the notion of purity in that word as well. It's absolutely correct. Good. Oh, Tybal. Um, it's actually a quick one because I'm trying to find the dictionary you just cited. Is it from Brill, the academic publisher? It's five volumes and there's a third author, Kohler, Baumgartner, and Stam? No. Wait, no, this is Kohler, Baumgartner. It's two volumes. Oh, the, never mind. The same people, Kohler, Baumgartner, and a third one, Stam, now have a five-volume one. Oh, okay. They just must have broken it down to five volumes. That's it. Yeah. The, though they call it, of course, the Old Testament as opposed to the Hebrew Bible. But Yes, right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, because if you look at the volumes, they're two big, heavy volumes. It's easier that they appear in five, especially for people with aging wrists. And uh, yeah, I just read to the bottom, and it does say this set is replaced by the two-volume set. It's replaced by. Oh wait! All right, never mind. I don't want to take more time. I'll figure it out. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, yes. Okay. <clears throat> Moving on. Um, now this is, but here now here you could argue, uh, you know, it's a, a repetition. But you see, I think 
the other, the other, uh, the reason why bara was chosen with light, because now you have yirat adonai tahora. All right, fear of God is pure. Okay, and you don't have any specific. Well, you could say nemanim and yisharim. Yeah, it could be repetitious. But anyway, the fear of God is pure. You know, I mean, think about that. It's almost an oxymoron. How can fear be pure? Fear is a negative type of a thing. So how do we understand this? If you translate it as awe, yes, as opposed to fear, which is another translation of ira, then it makes a different kind of sense. It could be. It could be. Right. Okay, that's I, I, that, that thought actually crossed my mind. Absolutely good. Okay, who else? Nobody. All right. Anyway, it's yeah, it's it's possible. But on the other hand, it could be that um, tahorah in the sense of purifying. In other words, it 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 it, it purges you. I mean, if it, it, it has to do with with uh, something we would you know, like tshuva. Right, you think about Yirat Shamayim, fear of God, fear of the consequences of of not following God's law can actually impel you to want to stop doing that and to repent and do tshuva. And in that respect, it is pure in that it purifies. And think about that one. Okay? All right. But omedit la'ad. And, and it's, I see your hand, yeah. And it, um, it stands forever. In other words, it's, it is unchanging. Fear of God, the, 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 because God is, is forever. God, the force within God is forever. Therefore, it's eternal. And it's always available to tap into, to motivate people to rid themselves of the impurities of sinfulness. Okay, Leon and then Mike Harris. Ma, Leon, you, you, you need to unmute. I try not to be intrusive. That's fine. Uh, I got outlasting time, and, and I kind of like that. It's like yeah. God, it outlasts time. That's good. I, that's very poetic, but it's the same idea, but I like it. Yes. Because yeah. God is what well, God was before time, <clears throat> right? <clears throat> I remember Genesis chapter one is the beginning of time. Time is invented by God. And clearly, you know, um, astronomers, some astrophysicists tell us that about uh, a trillion, 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 trillion trillion years from now, the universe will disappear. Well, 15 billion years ago, it appeared out of nothing. Yeah. And it'll go back to nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, for 370 million years, there was no light. <laughs> yes, but that's a drop in the bucket. I know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay, um, Mike. Yes, what if what if you read the uh, Tahorah in the sense of Taharah, the, the, the ritual of, of cleansing of a body, that, that it's a, akin to that, fear, fear of... Of God, while we're alive, cleanses us the way Tahara cleanses the body after we've died. Well, but also you you can you when you go into a mikvah, 
and you come out, the whole point is that you are now Tahor. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to deal with, it's not just the cleansing of a body of a dead person, but the human body itself physically can be purified. That's what mikvah is about, right? So I, I accept your point, but I would expand that. It's not simply in death. Mm-hmm. And you can maintain, if you maintain halakha, I mean, you know, maintain the law and, and the fear of God, then the 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 filth of sin is minimized, okay? And that's the whole point is when you send the soul, when the body back, it's the same thing when you uh, a person is dying and you do a vidui. The purpose of the vidui, it's kind of a spiritual tahara, right? It's a it's a it's it's a it's a hardening of sins, a confessional. Right. And this whole notion that God will forgive. So, yeah, I mean, death, the onset of death involves both physical and spiritual cleansing. But the the point is, it's more than that. It's part of living and living a life of purity is an ideal, you know, uh, that we probably never can achieve. And that's why we have uh, tshuva. You know, constantly be, we have to be constantly on top of it, but that's us because we are, you know, flesh and blood, as they say. All right. Now, continuing. Mishpatei Adonai Emet. Yes. The judgments of God are truthful or true or truth. They embody truth. So this is, of course, the case. Tzadku Yachtav, and they are altogether uh, righteous. Okay. So that would be the same that you talk about death. At burial, you do the tzidu kadim, the justification of God's judgment. Because at a time when a person dies, people yell and scream, where's God's justice? Why did this person die? It's, it's normal, not unusual. So the answer is no. Ultimately, there is judgment. There is justice. Okay. And that's what this is saying. Okay. So here you have then, this amazing litany of powerful forces that are implicit in Torah that can literally make human life, you know, bring ultimate meaning into human life. Because ultimately, the first two lines, 8A and 8B, right, the 8s, they are basic establishing the basic principles, Right. But it goes on, though, beyond Torah, to talk about all of these different elements that that make up in the, in the big picture of Torah, and and uh, and start talking now about little things, the smaller elements in life: your heart, your eyes, right, the daily judgments that you deal with. Okay, and so it, it's it's an amazing um, phrase of Torah in all of its in the abundance of its capacities to create meaningful God directed life. And finally, this is interesting, the bottom line, the end of this, Anekmadimi Zahavli Pazrav, they are more precious than gold and indeed the finest gold. And they are sweeter than honey and the honey that drips directly from the honeycomb, 
right? So and this is like, it's an amazing thing. It's almost saying, if you really appreciate Torah with all of its subtleties and everything, ultimately, you're going to live a life of sweetness and of great worth living. And it's beautiful. And, you know, again, it takes something, the burdens, what, you know, you mentioned before, the yoke of Torah, Y-O-K-E, yeah, the yoke of Torah. It's a burden. But what this is saying is in the end, though, no, it's sweetness. And it's it's ultimate ultimate wealth is in Torah. And it's a, it's a lovely, it's a very beautiful ending, positive side of the whole thing. Tybal. So um, I thought, or I thought I had learned, and this doesn't contradict it. I just think it's interesting that whenever we see honey because of the seven species, it's most often date honey, not bee honey. But this is obviously bee honey. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, and do you think that's why, I mean, the, the honeycomb word could be in there just because it scans better and it's poetry. But do you think that since the default was usually date honey, that's why it's it's honeycomb bee honey. Could be both. I don't know. It could. It could be both. You know, just a general statement. Something that is, you know, indigenous to the tradition, part of the tradition, and at the same time, is sweet. So I, I the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> okay, Bert. I was just going to say the flow of the song, as you pointed out, is unbelievable. Because remember the first, uh, what is it? The first seven verses are about the universe and God's handiwork. And then we get to God's laws and God's precepts, whatever. And now we're getting very individual and personal. In, in what we're about to get into, and the transition is honeycomb and and very very close things that are close at least not today, but were close to people's life at that time. So it struck me you had pointed that out, and I'm feeling it a lot. And that's good. And and gold and honey are gifts from God. Mm-hmm. Okay, do I see a hand up over there? Go ahead. I was just curious whether that's why we use uh, honey when we do the upsharen. And when we did Rafi's upsharen, we made an olive on a plate, right? And they lick the olive when to, after they say it's an olive. Is that why the connection is with honey? Yes, exactly. The sweetness of Torah, that tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. Good. Right. All right. And as Bert mentioned, so now, right, we've, we've begun, we went from the universal. Hold on a second, AJ. There was the universal. Then the Edut, remember, Edut is the covenant statement between God and the people. The people who accept Torah, right, have this amazing, wonderful gift from God. So it's now focusing on the pe- on on the people in the collective. Now we move to the individual, and that's the author of the song. And you'll see the 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 person switches. He's talking about he's himself. Okay, that's very now it's really personal. Yeah, AJ. 
Um, the use of the term honeycomb brings to mind that the honeycomb itself is an example of a closest pack structure. Yes. Um, in crystal, in, in uh, nature, one sees these, um, geometric shapes which enable a closed, closest pack structure where nothing is wasted. Yes. Um, there's no, it, there are no interstices, as it were. Um, yeah. It's all part of the structure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that helps you in some way, but just an observation. No, I think it's a good point because what it is saying is, remember, <clears throat> it's, it's saying that the most minute type of thing, and here bee honey is, is, a good exa- is a good thing because the bee is a tiny little creature, relatively speaking. And yet the bee operates with a community, but the bee and the community are also part of this amazing world that we celebrated in the first part. It too is an expression of the, 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 we, in a sense, you're right. This is a step back into nature, but the common denominator that it has with the Torah thing is, as you say, it's a structure. It, it allows the bees to operate in a society where they all work together. And it's generally a, a harmonious society, as far from our perspective at least, right? And it, it's an order and it's a structure. It's an absolute. It's, it's something that, that non-humans designed and built. And so, yes, it's a miracle. I will, I will tell you, and some of you have heard me say this, uh, Yehuda ha, um, um, Halevi, right? Yehuda Halevi, Yehuda Halevi. <clears throat> in his uh, book, in the Kuzari, his book of, uh, I call it theology, it's philosophical theology. Uh, he explains, he sort of says, everybody looks up to the heavens to see a, an orderly universe that is, uh, you know, a, a miracle, an evidence, evidence of, of God's activity, of God's brilliance, his power. But he says, look at the honeybee and look at the ant if you want to see miracles. That's miracles, right? The honeybee and the ant, because they're these tiny little animals who, who you know, who live in, organ, in an organized society. And they build their their structures, you know, and they they have a, an order, a pecking order, and so forth and so on. And that's part of God's world also. And in a sense, it's more miraculously than the human beings. Today, we might look at that and say, hmm, maybe there's some wisdom in it. Okay, anyway, yes, but I think, AJ, no, you're right. Um, and I think part, remember, you heard me say this also many times. Part of the beauty of, of the mitzvot and, and the brachot in particular is that it reminds us that all of these things, these, these material things that, that, uh, are meaningful to our lives, positive things, uh, by saying blessings, we, we appreciate, we don't take them for granted. Part of the system is don't take the good, the beauty of the physical world in its totality for granted. And that starts with the tiniest little things. I mean, a honeybee. 
Yeah, I, I got, I've gotten stung by honeybees, and there are people who unfortunately are allergic to that. I'm not, thank God, but there are people who are. I'm sorry. It's the imperfection in the world. But at the same time, the, the honeybee, you know, is, in the, is a miraculous thing. How Levy said it, because you, you look at the darn thing, and you see this, this fat body with little wings. And you say, how does that fat body fly with those little wings? I mean, I can see a butterfly. Ah, of course, a very small body and big wings. That makes sense. But the honeybee, it's a miracle that that thing flies. It's a miracle that they can make a honeycomb. And it's so beautifully designed. Yeah. So the, the Judaism's message is also appreciate the world that you got. Okay. But now we're going to go deep into the neshama of this person. And it's a, it, it, there's pain here. Okay, it's it's really it's a almost a reversal of the 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 impact of this Torah. Okay, and and it's a struggle, really. It, it, I'm not going to say it contradicts, but it brings the issue of Torah down into a very personal perspective on its impact on a human being. So what does he say? Right. Um, so I saying your servant, that is me. I am who's speaking. I am very careful about them. Okay. Uh, I'm cautious. I'm careful with them. With what? With the laws, with Torah, with the laws of Torah. And I understand Bishamram Ekevra. And in following them, as you have just indicated by the Nechmadim Mepaz Mitukimitvash, Right, sweeter than gold, that sweet, sweeter than honey, and more precious than gold. That there are wonderful results, there are wonderful uh, products of following Torah. I grant that, okay, and I appreciate that. However, shigiot niyavin, ministarot nakeni, who understands mistakes, errors? Okay, how can I understand this? From hidden things, hidden acts, hidden faults that are within me. Cleanse me of these things. Okay? I make unintentional errors all the time. I am prone to error. He's saying, I'm a human being. I'm imperfect. Hence, I'm going to make mistakes. And these are, these are not willful mistakes. Okay? Now, you know, technically speaking, if you remember... The, the, uh, the liturgy of Yom Kippur in particular, right? That you, th- you, you say, for the sins that I incur upon myself knowingly and unknowingly. Okay. And that's saying the same thing. I've, I do these things and it, it turns out it, it's, it's a sin. It's, or it's the wrong thing. It's a mistake. So cleanse me of this. Basically, what he's saying is, help me understand myself better so I can avoid these unintentional things that screw everything up. Okay, he's seeking out God's help. God, be my therapist. Give me the tools to figure this out myself. Please, I recognize this. Okay, Tybal and Bert. Um. Please, please, sorry, I didn't follow how you know it's unintentional as opposed to just a mistake. 
Oh, any because, kind of oh, two things. Shigiyah means an error, and Nistarot are hidden. But a hidden can just be something that no one else noticed. I mean, a hidden could be no, it's hidden, no, but it's hidden from you because you say cleanse me of these things. Oh, got it. Okay. He's asking. The, it's it's within him, not something you do to somebody else that they don't know. Now it may be that way, but the point is, from his perspective, the speaker here, the 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 poet is saying, "Help me deal with these mistakes that I made." Okay, Bert, and then Leon. The uh, the JPS translation I have here uh, is uh, clear me of unperceived guilt. And I'm looking at the Sachs translation, which is more meaningful to me, at least. Cleanse me of hidden faults. Yes, that's exactly. And that is, we all, as as you said, you know, we all sometimes make mistakes, and we have to be able as human beings to deal with them. Right. And sometimes we don't even realize they're mistakes. Or, exactly. or that's what I'm saying. That's a Benji Siegel does the same thing too. Right. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah. JPS says. <laughs> Well, in a sense, who can be aware of errors? Yeah, cleanse, clear me. Yeah. Oh, you're right. See, JPS says unperceived guilt. Benji says clear me of hidden faults. That's I prefer the clear me. At least that means more to me in English. Yeah, yeah yes, of course. And that's, uh, that's what it should mean. It should mean. Right. But now, okay, who's else? Okay. Oh, wait. Uh, Leon and then Rick. Hans, unmute. <laughs> See, that's, that's your new star. <laughs> yeah. That's what this reminded me of very much. Uh-huh. And my translation was unwitting sins who can grasp of unknown actions clear me. Yeah. And it's nice. Yes, it's I good. Should. Agree. Yes. All right. And uh, Rick Muller. Yeah, hi. I was just going to say the next verse is the intentional, so we we don't yes. need to worry worry so much about the whether it's unintentional or not because the next one is so it's gam this and gam that. Yes. So it's right. coming. That's right. So gam mizedim chasol chabdecha, protect me from from my intent, my willful sins. I mean, I I I err, I sin willfully. And that's another weakness that I need help with. So this guy's really asking. This is this is very 21st century stuff, I would say. Very first 21st But the point is, he's realizing it. He's not in denial. Remember, Pharaoh, that was Pharaoh's problem. He was in denial. Get it? Denial. <laughs> yeah, it's not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> okay. Anyway, <clears throat> Yeah, but he he's not he admits he admits it. Now Zaydim, it's interesting because Zaydim can mean evil people. <laughs> but it means the root there is the same as Zadon, which means willful a willful sinful act. A willful <laughs> act of evil. Okay. So Zaydim here does not talk it's not saying uh keep uh, um um guard oh, sure. me from evil people, but guard me from willful Sins on my part, and it's pretty uniform in terms of its uh, interpretation. That's what it's saying, right? And then because then he says, "Alim shalubi, let them not rule me." 
let these in, let this tendency towards sinfulness, known willful sinfulness, as well as hidden sinfulness, let them not rule me, rule me, because then I will be I come I will be purified and I will become tamim whole pure. Vinikati and I will be cleansed, Mipesha Rav, from great sin. Okay, so he wants help dealing with his sinfulness. It's powerful stuff. Taibo. So Tom by the time of the rabbis, because that's the simple son. I mean Tom all through this psalm is is the highest among the highest of praise. But I don't see it that way in the Haggadah, and I bet I'm not unusual. Did did the meaning change by rabbinic language? Well, the, the, remember, simple has many meanings. Um, I mean, Tom, <clears throat> okay, yes. Again, this is one of these things where you open up the lexicon and you have A, you know, number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, etc. Different meanings. The whole, the Tamim, you know, is, is, can be, Torah Adonai Tamima, there you had it. In other words, basically what, it's interesting, it's beautiful here. What he's doing is picking up on the same word as Torah is Tamim. It's complete, it's full, it's whole, it's perfect. I will, so a Tam means I will be whole again. Okay. Or I will not be, now Tom can mean, if you say, it's sort of the notion, not complex. Everything fits together. But Tom can mean, because then it's simple, right? When you have contradiction, when you have forces pulling in both directions, okay? That's not Tom. When all are together and they're a simple, more simple type of a, of a situation. So that's, that's how that evolved. I can tell you, that there are interpretations uh, in the traditional lit- interpretations of the Haggadah, which say that the Tam is actually a person of pure faith. They use it in that respect. Not simple, but this is a guy whose faith is pure. And in that sense, it's a positive thing, right? And you, so you give him just a basic statement, because it's for him, it's not complex. It's simple. It's pure. I have faith. I believe. Okay. And then there are, by the way, the interpretations that actually see the you can save this for Pesach, that the one, and by the way, in the, the pecking order in this Midrash on the Haggadah, obviously at the bottom of the ladder is the Rasha. Next comes the Chacham, who knows a lot. Next comes the Tam, Whose faith is pure, and finally is the one who doesn't know how to ask questions, because he says, "What can I ask? I am a human being. I stand before God, who is beyond my capacity to fully comprehend." So not only is he whole in his faith, but he's humble in the presence of God, and that's the highest form. They flip it. Interesting. Thank you for raising that. That was good. All right. Anyhow, so here we are. And then now, of course, now that this is all, you know, he, he has faith. He, he has faith. One second, Rick. I see your hand. Just let me finish this up. He, he is faithful. 
And he's not arguing. He's not angry at God. He's struggling. He's saying, God, I struggle. Help me. Okay. And then finally, he says, Yet let my spoken and unspoken words be before you. Right? The words that come out of my mouth. Hegyon libi is the unheard words of the meditations in my heart. God, who is my rock and my redeemer. So basically saying, redeem me of myself. This is a form of redemption. It's a complete, when you usually say, rock of Israel is a right to help the people, right? Help bring, bring us redemption. Bring the Mashiach. That's not what it's saying here. I don't, he's not talking about the Messianic era. He wants his own. He wants to find himself in his own Messianic state where he can be freed from sin, be pure of evil, and serve God wholly. Fully. Powerful. Amazing. Okay. All right. Rick. Um, the uh, the verb yimshalu, um Yimsholu, um, uh, uh, ruling, right? So, yeah, when I see that, it's like the sun and the moon in creation, they're ruling over, right? Uh So it's a, it's a callback to the Shemesh and the Yareach, uh, earlier. If, if, if the poetry is, is supposed to do that, I mean, it's it's kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. Oh, so. But so it could be against the pagans who who worship the sun and the moon, maybe I don't know it's it's kind of like a dig against them don't uh don't let the sins rule over me, but don't let the sun and the moon and the sun God and the moon God rule over me either is that is that too much of a stretch that's <laughs> um, interesting. going back to the yeah. heavens part yeah, but the point no, but the thing is. The sun, the, it's just the sun, right? And the sun is presented here simply as a, um, uh, you know, he, he, he is running. That, that is a, a, a bridge. We talked about this. The presence of the sun here is talking about this, the, how his light spreads all over the place the same way. That these un, un, unheard words from God, from the heavenly host, spread all over the place. Okay, and they picks up on the words katze, which means the ends, right? Um, there in verse five, kolam right? So their words, the words are already out at the ends of of the of the world, and now he's saying the same thing in the sense that the sun. Is is providing this this heat this warmth, so this is a continuing bridge from the heavenly down to the earthly. It's not yeah. the issue I, of, of ruling is not is not implied here. Yeah, well, I just when you said you know Judaism is against the paganism, I just thought well, maybe this was a was a dig against the the pagan well, gods. I, I, no, I under I heard you, but I don't think it's what yeah. it is here because he's okay. not. I mean, the sun, the sun is us here. It's, the sun is presented as a bridegroom, you know, and in a bridal canopy that God made for him. And he's, he's, you know, he's, he's finished his, you know, his, his the beginnings of his re- relation to responsibility 
as a husband to a wife, to a wife. And now he's out there with energy because, you know, he's energized by the joy and the, you know, the positive physicality of his relationship with his wife and so forth. And now he's saying, hey, whoopee, you know, and all that light spreading all over the place, all that warmth. That's it. Ends okay. on positive, you know, it, but that's a bridge, as I said. And this is not just me. You know, it's a bridge into the worldly thing, which the second the part is. But again, the worldly thing of the Torah is not simply worldly. It is it is elevating the human being. And, and it ends with this notion of this elevation into a realm of, of, of light and gold and, and, and sweetness and beauty and wonderful stuff. Okay, so it's a, in other words, that saying that the, a human life in, in terms of this world, can be beautiful and meaningful and filled with 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 godliness now here but then of course the last part comes and says it's not that easy it it takes the idealism of the second component the second segment and and sort of pours cold water out and says yes the potential is there but uh, we have one problem we are people interesting it, it, you see the ideal is now the the real confronts the ideal. And that's why he has to cry out for help because he wants to achieve the ideal and in the condition that he's in, he can. Open honesty. Talks about how open and honest and truthful God's law is. Amazing thing. And now the, the author is being honest in, in admitting his own weaknesses. His therapist would be very proud. Okay, Bert, and then Tybal, and then we move on to Psalm 29. Hybe, turn on your mic, Hybe. Sorry, I'm struck by the uh, by this couplet that it's the words of the psalmist's mouth and the prayers of the heart that the two have to go together. That you can't just be talking and you can't just be praying or hoping from your heart, but that it takes both. And this is like the whole soul. It's the physicality of it and the passion of the heart. Very powerful stuff. Right. And a wallop. I, go ahead. No, I said it packs a wallop. Yes, it's a wallop. It is. Well, the whole bottom, that whole part there is a wallop. But it also picks up, again, you have a, a, a there is a, a frame here. It picks up on the unspoken words. It refers to Imre, Amari, mm-hmm. right? We saw that at the beginning of the psalm, right? The, right, the words the, are not heard. The silent words that were not heard, correct. And it, but it brings that in as well. The Hegyon Libi. Those are the silent words. So it really picks up on the, on the struggle in the first part between the spoken and, and unspoken concepts and within the human being as part of one's complexity, perhaps is the fact that there's an unspoken part of us and a spoken part. And then there's the image of the rock, which here is my rock and in other places our rock. Yeah. And I always think when I see rock of Moses hitting the rock. Oh, no, but this, <laughs> I understand, no, but sure. Which you're not supposed to do. No, but without the Bible, you're right. Oh. Put, put, put that aside. That's It's another meaning. But yeah. in the Bible, God is a rock, you know. Right. Oh. You're on hard, strong, 
exactly. Yeah. Okay, Tybal. All right, Rabbi Joel, unknown middle name Rimbam. How many authors do you think you think there are in this hundred and fifty Psalms? And if you think there's more than one, what else what else do you think the particular psalmist wrote in addition to this one? I can't answer that. I mean no no. Answer one. Yes, there are. Because you've got Psalms and this is based on on the theme, language, you know, what what they what the what the psalmist is aware of. Okay. You've got Psalms that clearly were written uh after the return from the exile, uh, when there is a prayer for the immediate rebuilding of Jerusalem, right? Um and there are Psalms that have a very, the next Psalm we're going to read, Psalm 29, could be an older Psalm, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, this is a very sophisticated Psalm. And, um, I'm thinking that, I mean, I can't date it. It's too complicated. The language, there's not much in here that really is uh, what we would call archaic st- uh, style. So I wouldn't say that it's very old, but again, you, and I'm not the, I am not the world linguist. I don't pretend to. And what I know about linguistics in Hebrew and some Semitic languages, I've lit, picked up from my reading, but I'm not a systematic student of that stuff. But the point is this, this psalm is sort of basic, uh, biblical Hebrew, not old. It's not late. And so, therefore, it, 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 it's just amazingly powerful. Yeah, but yes, there were many. If, well, look, the thing is, you even have different rec. We mentioned this last time. There's psalms that are associated with David, psalms that are associated with B'nai Korach, psalms that are associated with um, uh, with Asaph, psalms that are not associated with anybody. Okay, and it's, so it's a it's a wide range. Um, but it's, it's a, yeah, so there are clearly multiple authors. Yes. Okay, we are now finished with Psalm 19. So uh, to the author of the Psalm, Yeshua, you did a great job. One more thing, Rabbi. Um, the rabbis liked the last sentence so much that they put it in the prayer book, right? It's at the yes, end of the right. Amidah. Oh, yes, absolutely. No question. <laughs> yes. I always like to point that out to the kids. Thank where you. the where the stuff comes? Exactly. I, I wouldn't say that the that Hashem put it into the prayer book. That was done by man. They I said, grabbed. The I said the rabbi. I said the rabbis put it in. Oh, yeah. I thought you said it differently. Okay. No, no. God, God gave us the capacity and the liberty to write prayers. Indeed, yes. All right. Another. This is a real walloper too. Okay. Um, uh, what was I going to begin with? Yes. So in the late 1930s, when they discovered Ugarit, which is this Canaanite city that was on the, on the, uh, coast of, uh, what is Lebanon today? Uh, and it's trove of literature. Well, you know, it wasn't, it was on parchments, it was on stone, et cetera, et cetera. And 
they took a look at the Baal poems that were woven into that trove of written uh, works <clears throat> in a Semitic language. Okay, Ugaritic is a cousin of, of Hebrew, Semitic language. And so it was, it became easier to understand it. Anyhow, some of them leaped or leapt, I pronounce it, to the conclusion that psalmist who wrote this was actually lifting things directly out of those ancient documents that, that he had read them. It was the enthusiasm of immediate discovery. And very often the, the enthusiasm of immediate discovery uh, is superficial. And subsequent generations of biblical scholars looking at the psalm said, no, no, no. The author may have been aware of expressions of Baal worship. Remember, these are poems that deal with Baal. You know, because Baal worship didn't disappear during biblical times. It was there prominently at the beginning, then it died out, and later on with Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel, um, Ezebel, that means the island of garbage, right? Oh, you Hebraists, E is an island, Zebel is garbage. I just made that up. There, there are, there are, and there are. I like it. Yeah, thank you. There are. <clears throat> Literally, I mean, there are linguistic explanations of it, which I have forgotten as to what it means, but that's neither here nor there. All right. Anyhow, no, there, there was a burst of Baal worship at that time because of the queen and the king who was willing to keep his queen happy. And that's been, you know, known for a century, you know, for decades, you know, generations. So, um, the point is that this is not a plagiarism of Baal literature. If anything, it's the opposite. It is a huge pushback against the imagery of Baal in those poetry, in those poems. I mean, for example, Baal lives on a mountain in the north, okay? North of, of, of Canaan, okay? Well, you're going to see this reference to northern mountains in this, Okay. Baal is the god of thunderstorms, okay? Powerful winds. Baal makes war against the depth, the Yamat, the goddess of the deep. And all of these notions are woven into this psalm. But it is clear, and here's this word again, that this was all repurposed. The author of the psalm took all that stuff and twisted it around and made a resounding statement that there's only one God and he did everything. And the fact of the matter is, and you'll see, we'll talk about this more in detail. God's 18. name is mentioned 18 times. 18. 11 verses. 18 times. I venture to say, and I say this without having read every single passage in the Bible, but I'm going to guess this is the most concentrated use of the four-letter name of God, yud heh vav anywhere in the Bible. It is exuding in Hashem recognition. And I think that's the point. 
what he's saying is Baal BS. Okay? No. No, 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 18 times. This is Hashem. That's all. Be all and end all. And we will see that he, it, it's, it's really focused on the ultimate power of God. And it expresses itself in fascinating ways. And I had to do some research to explain certain elements here or to gain some more deeper insight into them that I've never done before. I have um, done research in seismographic maps, right? Maps that map out uh, fault zones that generate earthquakes. And you'll see why in a minute. And right here in my little sweaty palm, I have the map. Can we get copies of those? No. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I can. Give me, I have, I mean, it's, it'll, yeah, I can do it. I mean, if I remember, somebody send me the email, I'll send them out. Okay. Those who wish. If you want to, uh, just send me an email. All right. All right. Here we go. Mizmor Ladabi. Remember again, I'm going to say it again in Psalms 3 through 41. The vast majority of them are Mizmor Ladabi. Okay. Here we go. Habalwadanai Benayalim. Habalwadanai Kabod Ba'oz. Ascribe unto the Lord, O you Benayalim. Ascribe unto the Lord glory and strength. <clears throat> okay. The Lord is used because it's Adonai, which means Lord. Okay, but every time we say that, it's yud heh vav or as I write in English, Y-H-V-H. <clears throat> okay, this all, it's not God. It's Hashem, the name, 18 times. So it's not amorphous, right? It is clearly defined. Now, God is amorphous, yes. But the point is, it is by design, personal. Not Elohim, not Ale. There is Ale once. You'll see it right now. So, Habul, uh, so, so ascribe to, to Hashem, B'nai Elim. So, the, uh, JPS says, O divine beings, and Benji Siegel says, sons of deities. Okay. Divine beings may be more of an interpretive interpretation. Sons of deities is a literal one, okay? This is probably a process, a, a, uh, some sort of, uh, of, uh, repurposing. Remember, we mentioned that the, the notion that the name El, right, is, is applied to God, but El was the, the boss, the head of the pantheon in Canaanite religion, father of Baal was ale okay in fact the term ale elion highest ale is definitely associated with ale in pagan literature so that's repurposed so what does b'nai elim really mean well what's b'nai here's the interesting thing it has a number of meanings it can mean sons right banim but it can also mean um members of a specific cohort of people who are committed to a common cause and or activity, okay? So, for example, 
there's an organization called the Native Sons of the Golden West. Real. And they do, they preserve uh, documents and things and buildings that go back into California history. All right. So, but they are not, they were not, they were not the descendants of the Golden West. They happened to live there, right? They were born there. And so they call themselves the sons. All right. So in other words, it's an identifying word of a group of people who, uh, who have something in common, something that they believe is important. Okay. The same thing you have the, uh, what is it called? The Daughters of the Confederacy, an organization, I don't think it exists anymore. Who were, well, they yeah, were. The, D, the DAR does. Huh? Da- Daughters of it, the Republic, Re- Revolution, yeah. There's also the Daughters of the Golden West. My grandmother was one of them. Oh, so that's part of, that's the female, ver- that's the female version. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, can, right, I, can, so I, my, have, can my, I ask my, one question? Wait, wait, about, wait. About, Wait, wait, wait. The, the, the point being, it means people who are part of a group that share a common interest of some kind. That's important to them. Okay. And the Bible uses it that way. We'll get to it more. Okay. Barbara. Yeah. You, you mentioned about Baal. You know, we've talked about Baal and you said that he was in the mountains more in the north. Yeah. I thought, I always thought that the gardens, in Haifa, of the Baal people were because that's where they believed Baal was. Oh, Baal was all over the place. That's Baha'i. That's, that's not Baal. Baal. That's oh, that's Baha'i, right. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. No, but the fact is, okay. Baal, Baal, Baal is, we have a reference to this Baal Pa'or, right? That's where there was a horrible attempt on the part of the the Midianites uh, to in, introduce pagan worship into the Israelites in the desert, okay? And so Peor is the area there. So this is the Baal of the area called Peor. And Baals, there are lots of Baals all over the place that are associated with different names because those are the places where different manifestations, different expressions of Baal were. But they're, they're, it's all basically the same God, but with all with variations on the theme, but that was widespread in, in around is you know ancient Israel, but also within it, and that was a major struggle during the second part of the biblical period. Okay, so all right, so Rick, can I also add Laurel and Hardy had a great movie, The Sons of the Desert, where they put on these fezes and they're. They're, uh, ah. they tell their wives they're doing something else, but they're on TV marching down the street in Hawaii. It's a, such a great, uh, movie. Laurel and Hardy, I highly recommend it, but they were the sons of the desert and they have yeah, this little exactly. group. Okay. But yeah. in the Bible, let's get back to the Bible. You have the thing <laughs> called B'nai All right. It's mentioned in, 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 uh, second Kings, Malachim Bet chapter two. Referring to members of a particular group of the, of men who studied with a prophet and practiced prophecy. So their B'nai means the disciples of. Okay. So it has all kinds of different nuances here. So what is B'nai Elim? B'nai Elim, I want to suggest, is a cohort of heavenly beings 
who comprise part of Hashem's court. The notion that God had a court of of heavenly beings is widespread, and that's what this is talking about. And this is not an, a this is not in any way a um, a compromise on monotheism. The angels, and there are different levels of angels as well, uh, were part of this divine court. Okay, so they were there. That's how the ancients believed. You know, God operated. God was a king. A king has a court, right? And, you know, support group. And the rabbis picked up on this as well. When God says, uh, uh, let us do something. So the rabbis say, God is consulting with his court. This is the rabbis saying that with his courtiers. So that's a, that's a notion that begins in the Bible and carries down into rabbinic time. And I think that's what B'nai Elim means. And I'm going to pick up on a point that Benji Siegel makes uh, and to help to further illuminate that. Okay, quickly, Barbara. When you read this, there's commas after ascribed to the Lord, O divine beings, comma, and then you're ascribing to the Lord glory and strength. So I'm not, in a way, it, it reads that it's the Lord who caused the, the divine beings to come and the Lord caused the glory and strength. Is, is no, that no, a correct? Ascribe, no, no. Ascribe here means associate with God. And now when it says, oh, divine beings, it's like saying, um, hear me out, oh, people. Hear me out and listen to my word. It's a style. Okay. okay. Um, and what they're do- what saying here is, is ascribe to the Lord means associate with God or you know, make, how shall we say, uh, put a, put a flashlight, uh, put a light on the fact that God is glory and strength. Emphasize it. Make, you know, make note of it. Is it saying ascribe to, oh, divine beings ascribe to the Lord? No, no, no. He's speaking to his courtiers. He's speaking to these people and his, God is the, the, no, I'm sorry. Sorry. The speaker whom we don't know who this is. We don't know who the speaker is. The speaker is talking. The, the guy, the, 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 the person that wrote this is speaking to the members of God's court, the B'nai Elim, and telling them what they should be doing with respect to how they comprehend God, their boss. And we'll see why. And that leads me into what I wanted to say. And that is, Rabbi Siegel suggests that this unknown speaker who may be, and this is not the author of the, of the psalm. The psalm, the author, is writing it as if it is the, these are the words of the speaker. Who could the speaker be? Well, we know that there were different angels, hierarchies of angels. In the different concepts of that flow from the Bible times into rabbinic times. Okay. So this could be one of the archangels, the highest level of angels who comprise God's kitchen court, kitchen cabinet, if you will. Okay. And the, now, so this guy is talking down to the lower levels of divine beings who perhaps are too um, proud of their own divinity. And they take themselves too seriously. And so he's saying to them, 
Oh, you B'nai Elim, you know, know your place. I'm going to have you learn and say after me what God is really about. Because that's what's going on here. There's a sense that the B'nai Elim, they've gotten their head too big. Okay. And you know, it's the old story, you know, the, you know, the Hesedander. You know what a Hesedander is? Yeah. What's a Hesedander? <laughs> when I was a kid, one, one guy told me when he, he goes to the men's club meetings and whenever somebody stands up and they shouldn't be speaking, he goes, Hey, you Sedanda. That's right. But I heard <laughs> somebody from Shul. Guy. Okay. It's the, it's the sergeant at arms during services, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Hey, sit down there. <laughs> it's, it's old, um, what was his name? Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Um, Irv Dorsha. Yeah. Rest in peace. Was our old hey, sit down there. This is the guy <laughs> who would close the door and leave it closed and guard it when he was told to do so. If somebody was standing up at the wrong time, sit down there. Okay. That kind sit of. Sit down thing. there. So this I, I, so there's the old, the old joke. I'm sorry. I got to tell this joke. So it's now Yom Kippur. Okay. And people are getting ready to fall Korim, right? They're going to prostrate themselves in Shul, right? So, okay. So the Chazan goes down and the rabbi goes down. And the president goes down. And the vice president goes down. And the, and the secretary of the board and the treasurer and all these guys, the lead officers are sitting on the bima. And so they look at the back and the Hesedander, he went down. So the treasurer looks at the secretary and says, look at Moish back there. Who does he think he is so important <laughs> that he has the chutzpah to go down? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yes. So that's basically these guys are like the Hesedanders. Okay, I've just made that up. But that's 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 what I really think, though. The Bene Elim were a group of people who were, um, shall we say, imbued with divine spirit. If they were heavenly people, heavenly host, right, like an angel. Angels are literally, I mean, my friend, uh, Benjamin, not Benjamin Siegel, Benjamin Summer will say that there are angels who appear who are actually, uh, not embodiments, but represent, they're, they're, they're like, uh, uh, surrogates or, you know, of, of God, literally. God is speaking from that angel who's standing in front of Abraham. So God is present within that angel who looks like a human being, right, but isn't, okay? Or perhaps the angel that Jacob wrestled with. They're manifestations of the divine, but they're fleeting, and they're they're not God. But they're, they are, in a sense, many, many, temporary many gods, because they come, they do something, you don't hear them again, okay? And that's the understanding of many concepts of angels, they have a task, they do it, and they go away. Okay, anyhow, the point, though, is, so think of Moses when he comes down the mountain after spending all that time in God's presence. Okay, what does the Torah say about Moses? This is the second time he comes down 
with the second set of Ten Commandments. What does it say? His face was illuminated. He had to put on a mask because he scared the people that somehow they'd be looking at something of divine whatever. So he had to wore a mask. And when he went into the tabernacle, he took it off. Okay, that's what it says in the Torah, in Exodus. And so the point was, the theory is, if it's not expressed, but this, he was in God's presence all this time. That That energy was absorbed into him. Okay, and he became godly. But was he God? No, he wasn't. But that could be what these these guys are, because they work. You know, it's like they they work in a radioactive setting, right? And they don't have they don't need to worry about it, all right. But they but they absorb the radioactivity, but they're immune, okay. And that's what they've done. Mm. They absorb divinity, but they're not gods. But they excuse me. But they think they're gods. That was the problem. And so the arch, the archangel here is telling him, you don't know who you are. I'm going to tell you because I'm going to tell you who God is and that will put you in your place. You understand what I'm saying? That's what this is. And it's a repurposing of that, that concept that may have been used by pagans in talking about sub-gods in a pantheon. But biblical theology, not talking about pop theology, popular theology in biblical period in different areas in Eretz Israel, believed in a super god and second level gods. We we know that. That's not what this is saying. They're using that term, but it's making clear, eighteen times clear, that Baal ain't a god. And you guys ain't gods, because how many gods are there? One. There always has, there always was, there always will be one god. Okay, Tybal, and then we're going to stop. Um, this is a while back, and it may not be helpful, but I just wanted to remind you that in human courts, there's a function called the herald, who first gets everybody's attention, and then does proclamations because part of the hierarchy is the king doesn't do all the speak, you know, this king proclaims to right. the herald and then the herald tells everybody. And that way back when something you said reminded me as if the author of the psalm might be like a herald. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be. Yes. That, is that, that, that kind of a role? I mean, you have the same thing in the Yeshivot. Where the, uh, both in the, in, uh, Tanaitic and Amoraic times in the rabbinic period, where if it was a large group, the rabbi, the rabbi did not speak out loud. He would speak to his heralds and, you know, it could be one, it could be two, it could be more depending upon the size of the group. And they would publicly, uh, pronounce the words of God, of, of the rabbi. It was unbe it was unseemly that the rabbi should have to raise his voice. So he had all these other guys, these these uh you know, his his uh, human microphones who would amplify his words for him. 
same kind of thing. It's, it's unseemly that the that the boss uh, raise his voice. So it's the same, possibly the same kind of thing here. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're gonna we'll we'll start we'll come back and start from the beginning and next time and we're one session behind time, but I don't care because these uh-huh. uh, I'm this this guy as well. It is loaded, absolutely loaded. Okay, maybe we can finish it all next time, but we'll see. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tba.org.